Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 26th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Tickets for Coldplay's concerts go on sale on Friday. Yesterday's pre-sale tickets saw huge demand from 200,000 people looking to get in early and buy a ticket before the big panic on Friday. Well, that didn't go exactly to plan, did it? If you were listening yesterday, you'll remember Sharon and Navin saying she was in a queue with 44,000 people in front of her. And then there was Sinead, of course, who said, well, for you, Sharon, (laughs) Sinead was obviously frustrated with over 90,000 people ahead of her in the queue. Mickey and Kells texted us as we were coming off areas and he said, Michael, God be with the days that we went into record shops, got the tickets, very little stress, booked or got them on the spot. Now we're waiting on the phone all day to try and get tickets and then they slap on a service charge to get them. Modern technology, my eye, says Mick. Well, thank you indeed, Mick. I think a lot of people uh, would agree with uh, the sentiment of what you're saying and why is it so complicated to get a concert ticket. Timmy Dooley, Fianna Fáil Senator, joins us now. Very good morning to you and thanks for joining us on the programme today. Uh, Have you any understanding as to why it is so ridiculous difficult to buy a ticket to go to a show in this country? Well, I don't, but I have my suspicions. Um, and I suspect it has something to do with the way in which they're now charging for the tickets. I mean, the big problem that most people had for a long time was if they were unable to buy a ticket either online or in a music store or at a, at, at a, at a retail location, um, the only other way they could then buy a ticket was uh, from a tout where somebody had managed to buy it and was selling it at above, above face value. And that used to be the big annoyance for people who, who wanted to go to events. And, you know, the legislature looked at that. Um, a number of people brought forward, uh, Stephen Dudley actually, together with Noel Rock, uh, previously brought forward uh, a bill which was aimed at outlawing, outlawing the practice of the resale of concert tickets and match tickets at, at a price above the face value. But... Now that that has taken place, we we see uh, some of these online companies, some of these online ticket sale systems effectively manipulating, uh, would be the word I would use, um, the demand that's there and finding ways of charging more than than face value. So so I suspect 
these kind of queuing systems that they're putting in place effectively frustrating the audience into a point where they end up having to pay more. I've heard of cases where people were offered online yesterday mm. uh, tickets for a thousand euros. They weren't buying uh, a VIP package or a, a, a high-end package. They may not even be buying the best seat, but it was the way in which they have constructed this kind of a, a bid system within the overall ticket allocation. It calls into question the demand. I mean, you were talking about the huge demand. How huge was the demand? If people were buying the tickets and selling them straight away, is that not touting? Well, I mean, it is if somebody is selling it on, but if it's the the concert promoter or the the act themselves through their ticket agents that are doing it. You see, I mean, the other thing I have this bugbear with, they create a sort of a, a false demand They've already a deal done with the venue where they have booked four dates, but we don't know about it, or five dates. They say there's only one night available. Everybody gets panicked and exercised, and you create this snowball effect, creating demand. And, and that then forces up the price, because if you have only two, um, two nights on sale and there's demand greater than, than capacity, uh, the, the, the demand is greater, and then the price goes up. And then you find, lo and behold, they put on a another another event because mm. they're already pre-booked. So I think there's a role here for the venue owner. Um, and I think in this case, you know, the events are going to be in Crow Park. Um, I think Crow Park have a responsibility to put in place terms and conditions that prevent the act, i.e. in this case Coldplay, um, from manipulating the marketplace and for creating... Um, this uh, this effective uh, bidding between um, people who want to get the tickets. Yeah. There should be a ticket price. There should be um, a methodology, and let it be a lottery. Let everybody register at whatever the cost is. Put their money in, and you know if there's a if there's a, a lottery allocation, you come back. You got your tickets or you didn't, and that's fine. Mm. But there's nothing worse than being tempted to pay a little bit more and a little bit more. And I, I've heard of people who. And have booked with Coldplay now in another European city, and they're actually getting a three-day package with their, um, you know, by booking it themselves in a hotel, then. and their tickets over there, and the whole art is cheaper than what they were offered a ticket for yesterday. Well, God love you if you're going to look for a hotel uh, around yeah. uh, September in Ireland, next I mean, year when Coldplay are playing. Hotels yeah, yeah, around yeah, Coldplay yeah, now yeah. and what they'll be charged for them. So I, yeah, I just yeah, think, yeah. you know, I mean, we've all been led to believe yeah. that. Computers and online access is a way of simplification and making it easier for mm. us to do things. I think it's been used in a negative way here. Where's it's the competition, though? I, I mean, it's a monopoly, isn't it, with Ticketmaster? Well, I, it's not so much Ticketmaster because at the end of the day, people are going... T- Ticketmaster are, are are working with Coldplay here. So let's not leave Coldplay out of that. Look, I, I love Coldplay. I'd love yep. to go to the concert. I've been there before. No but, accounting for taste, uh, but anyway... But, <laughs> Indeed, but uh, but 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 Coldplay are complicit here because as the ticket price goes up, Coldplay get more out of it. So, you know, Coldplay dictates the terms and conditions that Ticketmaster deploy, and I'm saying that there's one other player in the middle of all of this, and I think it's the venue. I think it it shouldn't be beyond the, the capabilities of Crow Park to put in place some terms and conditions that would protect uh, the general public. At the end of the day, 
the GA has mm. a unique role in in in, in Irish. But society. what about the what about the suggestion that came from Mick and Kells? Why can't we print off a few thousand tickets for these big shows and have them on sale in Crow Park and some other selected uh, venues or stores, we, as the we, case may be? We could do that too, but I I think there's a simple. I I, I suspect there's a relatively straightforward way of doing it online too. But I think there has been algorithms used and methodologies used um, to obscure the marketplace a little bit. Um, You know, if you have a regular queuing system, um, it should be possible, whether it be online or in a physical format, to do a next person buy the ticket at the price, but not some kind of a a, a lottery, not some kind of a marketplace where you're potentially, by Mm. being in a queue, you're forcing up the price because they're able to visually see you waiting and therefore recognise that people will pay a little bit more for the next bunch of tickets. I think that's mm. wrong. Right, these are, are, are pre-sale tickets. The tickets don't go on sale until Friday. It could be sold out before the sale of the tickets actually starts proper. What's that about? Like, what's the difference between a pre-sale and a sale? Well, that's what uh, I was just about to ask you. And um, with 200,000 fans, are, are there 200,000 Coldplay fans who would have been looking for pre-sale tickets yesterday and willing to pay up to €1,000 to go and see the show? Or is... Uh, that uh, uh, situation where you've got one people who accounts for 50 or 100 or 1,000 of the fans? This may well be, and I think it's a manipulation. It's, it's, it's being, the, 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 the computer algorithms are being used um, to create a, a false demand, which is forcing up the price where people will end up paying uh, 1,000 euros. And I, quite frankly, I, I, I don't think any act is worth 1,000 euros to go and see. And I suspect... It's like a lot of things. It's the people who can least well afford this will be caught because you'll have parents trying to help out children who, you know, want to go. It's maybe their first event after leaving cert or it's a gift or it's whatever. Um, and their friends are going and they've got tickets and, and, and people will be forced mm. into paying for it. And, um, and how do they get home? Do they need a thousand euro for a hotel? Well, it'd be cheaper to get a taxi to and from Cork, I would have thought, to Crow mm. Park than to pay for a hotel around that thing. So I, I, I just think we... We need to look again at the transparency of the way these ticket sales companies are operating. But, but, but I'm not blaming Ticketmaster because they're, all they're doing is serving uh, their client, which is Coldplay. And I think it says a little bit too about uh, Coldplay. I mean, at the end of the day, these acts are, are only famous um, because people support them. They buy their music. They, they pay for their albums. They go to their concerts. I think they have a, a social responsibility, no different to any corporation or, or, or any act to show respect for their fans so it's not good enough to say ah that's Ticketmaster um, Ticketmaster are really only employed by them mm. to do their job and I think they've as the as, as the talent is to use that horrible term or as the act they have a responsibility to ensure that right the way through their, both their ticketing their mm. merchandising and the sale of their records are done in a manner that, that respects um, their their fan base. Yeah, but do we have to pay a service charge? I mean, that was one of the things that Mick said in his message. Uh, you used to go in and buy a, a ticket. The price was the price. Now, uh, the price is a hundred euro or two hundred euro or whatever it is. Uh, some of the concerts are very expensive, and you you, you realise then you have to pay a service charge and VAT on top of that. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think it should be it it it, it should be possible to put the whole lot in and say the ticket price is going to be X, and that includes everything. Um, you know, 
again, that's down to the act. And I think we've got to force these acts and the venues because, I mean, there isn't competition within Ireland. There's only one venue in Ireland that can take somewhere up to 80,000 fans to an event, 70 to 80,000, depending on where the stage is located and configured and all of that. So it's not as if Crow Park can put their hands in their pockets and say, oh God, we had to do it because if we didn't, somebody else would have gotten it. There is only one venue in Ireland that can that yeah. can host something like this. And I think they need to muscle up a little bit, quite frankly, um, to these acts um, and make it very clear that they're not going to participate in what is, I think, a shabby treatment um, of people who want to go to these these venues to see these acts. Yeah, and people who want to go, the real fans, are, are quite often denied going because of what's happened online. Uh, they're laptop crashed or whatever it was. There was all sorts of error message and things that were happening to people yesterday, despite spending hours trying to buy a ticket, an expensive ticket, uh, at that. Uh, and it's the real fans who are, are denied going to see the show or else having to pay these extortionate prices. Yeah, and I mean, that's... I mean, if, if, if these acts were a little bit more conscious and cognizant of... I suppose, supporting their fan base or, or providing a good service, they wouldn't allow these practices to come into place. Um, there was a time where acts would show, I would have certainly thought, a, a, a desire to, you know, appreciate the people who, 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 who buy their music, who support them. I think they're being treated shabbily now, almost at arm's length, uh, because it's being, you know, the, the, the baddie here has been indicated mm-hmm. that it's Ticketmaster Prime. Just have to keep reiterating, Ticketmaster. From where I'm, my vantage point is, all they're doing uh, is is uh, selling the tickets for their their act, and and those are the you know that's where it needs to change. Okay. These big bands, these acts need to need to show more respect for their fans. Yeah, well, they announced two extra shows yesterday. Uh, the pre-sale tickets are on sale this morning for them. I I, I don't know if they'll yeah, iron out. Imagine to... somebody who who paid a thousand euros for tickets yesterday and discovered that if they got in line today because the demand is, is, is less that they'd get mm. them for face value. Um, I, I think that, that that would upset a lot of people. I think it would. Uh, and then the sale starts on Friday. Uh, I presume they hold some back some tickets back until Friday. I, I, I don't know. I, I did hear that... Uh, I did, did, did read, I think, somewhere earlier today that um, you know, the band had, had also a separate line and they were going to be selling tickets at 20 or 40 years to make sure that their main... You know, some of their less well-off fans could buy tickets. But I mean, that makes no sense um, because many of their hard-strapped fans will already have have um, uh, have, have uh, bought tickets at a dearer price. And how are they going to ensure, you know, that it's... Um, that it's the it's the fans who have have least available to them will be will buy these tickets or will be able to get access to these tickets. That it's, that surely they're not going to do a means test on them. So I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of smoke and mirrors here. All right. Well, there's also an awful lot of frustration. I think it's true to say. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as yeah. always. That's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley. Uh, a text from somebody who says, Michael, the problem with uh, the ticket allocation is with Ticketmaster and their partners. They have the monopoly, and competition is needed in the market it's a disgrace and hotels need a good hiding for the ridiculous price increases around these concerts government needs to be intervening says our caller thank you indeed another text message about this saying there's people out there getting tickets uh, and then they raffle them off 
uh, I, I'm not sure uh, exactly if I understand the text, uh, but I, I think it's generally that uh, you buy them at a certain price and then you can s- uh, sell them off at a, another price and make a fortune out of it. Uh, and I don't think that there's any um, doubt about that. Um, we've uh, two by 260 euro each plus fees for official platinum tickets. Uh, that were on um, sale yesterday. Uh, this is uh, Sharon in Tara again. Uh, that was for the Hogan stand. I take it you got your tickets. Uh, good for you. Um, we uh, Deirdre and Kel saying, total disaster if you have to buy tickets online. Uh, it, it's not everybody who is online and you should be able to go into a record store to buy them. Thank you indeed. Uh, if you've been in touch, uh, if you've not and you'd like to make comment, 041-983-2000 is our telephone number. That's 041 2000 text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, while Greece was burning yesterday, there were hailstones in Italy. It's said to be the size of tennis balls. So big uh, and so furious, if you like, uh, that uh, they were breaking windows and car windows and causing an awful lot of damage, all part of climate change. And here, uh, as you know, uh, Ireland is trying to do its bit. It, It has legally binding climate targets that were set out in two budgets, two carbon budgets, Uh, but uh, as you've been hearing, the Climate Change Advisory Council says we're not going to meet those targets from the first or second carbon budgets uh, and that will take us up to 2030. The Climate Change Advisory Council says that the pace that the government is implementing climate policy is not acceptable given the existential threat and the impact that climate change is having. Let's uh, speak to Sive O'Neill, the coordinator of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. Uh, a very good morning to you, Sive, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure you're disappointed uh, to hear that the state will not meet these targets by 2030, but I, I take it you're not terribly surprised. No, we're not surprised because a few weeks ago, the EPA uh, published its own figures looking at, um, you know, how much emissions had been reduced in 2022 and also what the projections were likely to be for 2030 based on current policies. And they pointed out that even if everything that's on the table is implemented properly, we'd only achieve a 29% reduction in emissions and we're supposed to achieve a 51%. But worryingly, the, I mean, the Climate Change Advisory Council report is is interesting because it does a deep dive into the different sectors. So it's not just a number crunching exercise. They're looking at the actual policies that are in place. So they have some very interesting and welcome recommendations. Okay. Uh, And uh, a different approach is what's needed, obviously. Yes, well, what they're saying is that Ireland must prepare for a future based on a significant and rapid reduction in the use of fossil fuels. And Michael, we know that it's the burning of fossil fuels that's releasing the carbon dioxide and other gases Mm. that are predominantly driving global warming. Basically, they act as a kind of a blanket in the atmosphere, trapping heat Mm. and driving extreme um, temperature and also weather changes. So in order to get a grip on this, every country has to radically reduce its emissions. 
And because of the science uh, that's been available to us for the last few years, we know that we actually have to get those emissions to zero, which means eliminating our use of fossil fuels almost completely. There'll yeah. be a small very tiny percentage that we want. So what we're looking at is a, is a kind of transition away from relying on fossil fuels for our energy needs. That means getting rid of coal, gas, oil, peat, and what else? Well, petrol and diesel, <laughs> and diesel I, I think, come to mind, uh, as does exactly. the All-Island Rail Plan that was uh, announced yesterday. And therein may lay the problem uh, that uh, this country faces in terms of uh, the government I- implementing its own plans, which are legally binding. But yesterday with Eamon Ryan, uh, Minister for Transport and the Environment, talking up the All-Island Rail Plan and what it will do for uh, reducing emissions because more people will get the train, they won't be in their car burning petrol or diesel. Uh, but the Taoiseach came out then and said, well, uh, it, it just actually makes the case for more investment in roads uh, where people would be in cars uh, burning diesel and petrol. What did you make of that? Well, I don't think the Taoiseach has read the latest science because uh, the very clear message coming from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is that in the transport sector, we need to shift people out of private cars and that electric vehicles are not going to solve the emissions problem entirely. They require a road network, but they also require um, lots of materials and resources um, for which there is a limited Mm. global supply. So we can't just shift entirely to EVs and continue as normal. We need to change our transport system so that most of our journeys are being done by public transport and active travel, which is cycling. We need trains. That means changing our planning system. It absolutely Trains, buses, trams. Mm. I mean, Ireland's rail network has been completely um, underinvested in for at least 50 to 60 years. Um, It's been paralysed and it's it's the same as it was uh, probably 80 years ago uh, and lines have been closed rather than expanded and that was all built all done on the premise that it was more economically advantageous to build roads than rail but in fact that logic is now being turned on its head because there's an emissions cost and a carbon cost and an economic cost to building roads when we should be doing things more efficiently in public transport Uh, and this is what really gets on people's wick isn't it Uh, i mean you're told to do your bit for the environment and stop burning fossil fuels. But what are you going to do? Freeze in the winter? Uh, and then you're told retrofit. Well, how do I afford to retrofit? And uh, what's a, a, an officer, a offer is really bureaucratic and cumbersome and actually doesn't suit my house. Or you're told to get an into, into an electric vehicle uh, and I can't afford an electric vehicle or there's all the problems with the chargers, etc., uh, etc. Et okay. So, well, let's just take the, the cars first because we were just talking yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to people is that the next time you're considering buying a vehicle, buy an EV. But if you already have a car, you know, there's no question that you have to get rid of it and replace it. If you have a car, you know, you take it to the end of its useful life. And when you're purchasing another car, that's the, that's the moment, that's the critical moment when you should be thinking about purchasing an EV. Now, when it comes to home heating and retrofitting, these are complex and expensive decisions. Mm. I'm in the middle of it myself, and I fully understand the frustrations of people. The reality is that once you invest in the retrofit, even if it's not, you know, a complete, you know, bells and whistles retrofit, but improving the insulation dramatically, um, attic walls and so on, uh, dressing your, 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 your windows and doors. Those already are interventions that will save you money. So 
there is a logic to making those kind of investments because mm. the carbon price on um, home heating and on other fuels is going to rise. So heating our homes with fossil fuels is going to become increasingly expensive. It's less efficient. Those interventions you make in your home will be, make it more comfortable. Mm. So you're not doing it for the government. You're doing it for yourself and your yeah. own comfort. Mm. And it will increase the value of your property over time. So yes, we do need to do something about making those SEAI grants more accessible. And um, the government has been promising low-cost loans to help people, and they have been delayed for some bureaucratic reasons in Brussels. But as soon as those loans come on stream at very low interest rates, hopefully that will really kickstart a major renovation wave because those interventions are extremely important for people in energy poverty mm. and who are paying excessive amounts to heat their, you know, drafty homes. Mm. Um, so and, we, and we must be we, two, well, but we must be two years into this. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd imagine it's about that long and we were promised that those loans would be in place uh, as soon as the retrofitting began. Yeah, the, the, the issue is that um, I, I believe that there's some state aid issues at Brussels. So it, it's mm. the government has a, a plan, but it hasn't been allowed to implement it. Okay. Um, now, that, that's not necessarily an ex- any excuse. Mm. They could be working with the existing financial institutions to try to create mm. uh, mechanisms that make it easier for people. Um, it, is, it is a challenge, uh, and very often the people who are most ready and able to take up these um, SEAI grants are those that are better off. So one of the things that our coalition has been recommending is that the government makes a priority of targeting the social and affordable homes for retrofitting, and especially local authority homes. Very often those tend to get retrofitted in in kind of bulk in in a big programme, and it's an area where people tend to experience more energy poverty. So we have to think about it in terms of you know, the, the health impacts and also the, the cost on low-income households who are really cut out of the retrofitting debate otherwise. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, if a huge uh, percentage of people uh, went down that road, where would that bring us? I mean, would it take us from 29 to 30 or 35%? Uh, it's hardly going to bring us to the 51%, is it? Well, to be honest with you, when it comes to the uh, building um, r- retrofitting, that that's a program that's going to take 30 years. And nobody mm. thinks that we're going to achieve, um, you know, complete success by 2030. It is a very long-term program. We don't have the construction capacity, actually, to, to conduct uh, <laughs> retrofits of all, all Irish buildings and homes um, at the same time. It has to be done in a phased manner. So the question is really... What, what are the priorities? Um, so we need to target the homes that are have the lowest burr rating and that where you have the most energy poverty because those are the people who are really struggling when oil and gas prices mm. go through the roof, which they have been. In and it's a, an injustice. Year. They're not going to get their homes retrofitted yes. and they're going to pay more for their coal or oil or whatever it is. That's it. That's yeah. exactly, mm. exactly. So we, ha- we have a lot of work to do, yeah. but the Climate Change Advisory Council, I just want to say this one thing. Mm. The report that it produced yesterday is important in one other way, because under the climate law, the minister is legally required to respond to it. So what happens next is the committee, a joint committee in the Oireachtas, um, chaired by Brian Ledden, um, will hold hearings in the autumn and invite the Minister for Climate Action and all the other ministers that have responsibilities in the Climate Action Plan and ask them to come in and explain why they are not meeting these targets and what the barriers are and mm. what needs to be done next. 
So there, and that's an important accountability moment. It's the only opportunity under the climate law where TDs, our elected representatives, can quiz the ministers and ask them why they're not achieving the targets. Okay. So we look forward to that in September. Yeah, and if we were, just to go back to that point, uh, because uh, maybe it's one of the questions, how do you do it quickly? If we were all to go out and retrofit our houses as quickly as possible, it'll take 30 years, you say, and we're not going to see any huge redu- reduction uh, in emissions as a result. But um, what if we were to close all of the data centres down in the country? Well, this is it. I mean, government policy is to reduce emissions by 51%, and it's legally binding targets. And at the same time, energy demand is growing because we are adding more demand to the system through these big data centres. They're uh, energy-guzzling um, enterprises, and they also consume a lot of water as well. So as we add more demand to the system, it has to be balanced. So every time we add a wind farm, we're adding extra capacity. But if there's more demand on the system, then there needs to be more gas-fired generation to balance the wind. It's a complex system, but as long as we're not 100% renewable, we need gas to back it up, back up the renewables for when the wind isn't blowing or when there just isn't enough um, wind energy on the system. So when we add more data centres, we make it really, really hard for the renewables to decarbonise the electricity system. So even though more and more wind farms are coming on the system and more solar farms, um, we're kind of running to stand still. We're not getting anywhere closer to the targets that we've set for the electricity sector. And that's down to the data centres. And the government has been, you know, very, very welcoming of data centres. We have 40% of Europe's data centres in Ireland. 40%. Mm -hmm. And there's more of them planned. We have something like 70 or 80 at the moment. And there's further data centres that are uh, proposed under the planning system and grid connections. And it just is illogical to keep adding these um, data centres onto the system when the grid is already under pressure and when it makes it impossible to achieve our renewable targets for electricity. Okay, Saif, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Thank you, Michael. Saif O'Neill, coordinator of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Interesting call to us uh, this morning from Anthony, and thanks uh, for calling us for that matter, Anthony. He says uh, that staff productivity across the country must have taken a real hit yesterday because it seemed like the world and his dog was online trying to get tickets for Coldplay, uh, some on several devices at the same time. Are Coldplay or MCD going to cover the cost of reduced staff productivity for business or cover the cost of sick leave for all of the employees? who pulled sicky so that they could go online for tickets. Thanks, as I say, for that. Paddy, thank you as well. Paddy was listening to the discussion about ticket sales. He says, the online madness yesterday only serves to highlight the fact that virtually all aspects of life are conducted online these days, which immediately uh, alienates a huge chunk of people who are not computer literate or who simply don't have access to a computer or the internet. Everything from banking, renewing car insurance, buying tickets, etc. It's all done online. In relation to the recent government scheme offering grants to people who retrofit their homes, Paddy uh, also wants to talk about that. He says he knows of a, a lot of people who would have been eligible for the grant who simply didn't apply for it because the application process was online. And Paddy thinks that the onus on online living is hugely unfair on a huge percentage of our population. Thanks for your call, Paddy. 
Anne phoned us this morning too. She says she was online promptly at 10 o'clock and was immediately told that there was over 100,000 people ahead of her in the queue for tickets for Coldplay yesterday. How is that even possible? Another friend of hers also queued for a couple of hours and managed to get the to the purchase ticket stage where the only options available to her were to purchase tickets for between €350 and €700 each. Total madness. It's an awful lot of money, Anne. You'd want to like Coldplay, I think. Um, Tommy wants to know why promoters don't sell half of the tickets online and the other half in ticket outlets around the country. This would be a much fairer way of doing things and would give fans a better chance of being able to get their hands on them. Margaret in touch with us about this too and she says that there should be a rule brought in whereby priority to buy tickets is given to the population of the country hosting the gig. I.e. if a band is playing Dublin, then Irish residents should have first dibs on the tickets. She thinks it's completely unfair that when you're buying tickets now, not only are you competing against the people you're living beside, but also fans from other countries around the world. Thanks indeed, Margaret, for that. Now, we wanted to uh, make mention of very brave young lady, 22 years of age, Karen Harkin, uh, who you may have seen on uh, the television yesterday. Uh, It uh, really was a a, a dreadful case of incest, of rape and sexual assault uh, by her father, a 55-year-old who was found guilty of one count of rape and 25 sample counts. Um, A a remarkably brave young woman, as I say, and we can hear a little bit of what she had to say outside of the court yesterday now. Children should be loved, not abused. It has been a long road to get here. But I am relieved that justice has finally been served. I feel that the sentence today reflects the crime that my father committed. He stole my childhood from me in such a malicious way. A childhood that I will never get back. Even though I get no satisfaction of my father going to prison today, I know that this is the justice that nine-year-old me deserves. This is what I have to do for me. I am finally able to free myself of this guilt that has consumed me for so many years. I am here today not only for myself, but for everyone else out there that has has suffered or is suffering from abuse. Please know that you are not alone. You will be believed and you, can, as long as you can trust in one person, a family member, a friend, the guardie, just know that you will be okay. I hope that speaking out will help end the stigma that is associated with these type of crimes today. I want to thank everyone who has stood by me every day. My family, my friends, the guardie, the DPP, my barrister and legal team. I am so grateful for the support you have shown me every day. Today marks the day that I will start this new chapter of my life. I will no longer imprison myself in the feelings of guilt and shame that are not mine to carry. These feelings are my father's and my father's only. Thanks. Indeed, a brave woman, young woman, 22 years of age, Karen Harkin, speaking outside of uh, the Central Criminal Court yesterday. Uh, thanks again to Sharon Intara, who got back to say she didn't buy those Coldplay tickets uh, that she got the chance to buy, if you like, €260 Euro each. Too expensive, she said. Uh, but uh, Sharon's been back in touch with us about climate change and uh, carbon emissions. She says the whole thing is a joke. Are China and Germany... 
and other countries meeting their targets, yet we are expected to slaughter cows, stop using turf. I think the Green Party needs to get their heads out of the clouds. We are trying, but you can't expect the country to fall to its knees just to meet these stupid targets when you won't even be finished retrofitting till 2030. Give your heads a, a, a wobble. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Sharon. Uh, Ellen in touch with us too about uh, climate change and uh, retrofitting. She said that woman um, from uh, the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition was talking rubbish. I'm on a pension and I know that there are grants available, but who's going to lend me thousands of euro to improve my home? So I'm keeping my fire and I'm going to burn everything. Thank you indeed, Alan. Uh, the environmental department make laws, but they don't enforce them, says uh, another listener. Fast food outlets are still using plastic cutlery and it's us who pick up the litter in Navin. Uh, and uh, I can verify that, says uh, the caller. Thank you for that. Uh, somebody else saying uh, it's cuckoo land stuff. Uh, thank you indeed. Uh, we'd uh, Mick, uh, who got back to us, I started off the programme by reading out the text that Mick and Kells uh, sent to us at the end of yesterday's programme. He says, thanks for re- reading it out. It, it regularly comes up on LMFM ads. Booking fees may apply. So annoying. Crow Park, intervene. Yeah, right, says Mick. Thank you indeed, uh, Mick, and everybody who has been in touch so far today. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp if you do want to make comment, 0861800658. And you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, just a, a couple of more comments uh, on uh, buying tickets online or the Coldplay tickets. Uh, a text from somebody who says, Rathoth Notice Board, there's a, an ad for two Coldplay tickets for sale. Unreal. People buying tickets and then selling them on for maybe treble the face value. Uh, somebody else then on retrofitting saying, the grant is great to get, but you need to have thousands beforehand to do the work to get the grant. And many don't have that kind of money yet they need their houses upgraded and a few question marks along with that thank you uh, for your text as well 0861800658 our text and whatsapp number call 0419832000 email michael at lmfm.ie now there has been a, a lot of controversy and indeed disagreement over the Northern Ireland Protocol and what that means uh, for the institutions in Northern Ireland and indeed what it means for the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. Uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol has been replaced with uh, the Windsor Framework that has been agreed uh, with uh, the European Union. The British government has agreed with uh, the European Union. Uh, but there is a, a grace period for implementing a, a, a lot of uh, the elements involved in it uh, and it'll start to be implemented from October onwards. In advance of that, the House of Lords Northern Ireland Protocol Subcommittee has published a report on how it's going to work. And they say it'll be better than, this is the Windsor framework, it'll be better than the Northern Ireland Protocol, but it it won't be perfect. In fact, they say that some businesses will find it more cumbersome uh, to trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. In fact, the British Veterinary Association told uh, this House of Lords committee uh, that it was extremely concerned uh, that it could lose half of its veterinary medicines in this new arrangement 
uh, and the Irish Times reporting on that yesterday saying that that could lead to the political stalemate prolonging for some time to come. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Murray Murray Muraku. A very good morning to you Uh, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, It's, what, two and a half, two two and a quarter years at this stage uh, since Stormont sat. Um, Will this uh, mean that there will be no government in Northern Ireland for the foreseeable future or how will this go down? Look, uh, any engagement I ever had in the last while in relation to the Northern Executive, particularly talking to the Tornish, the Taoiseach, um, was really about we needed to make sure that there couldn't be any element of drift because, you know, now I I had my own view that we were never going to get any deal in the middle of the marching season. Uh, I always found, right, the DUP had you know, put itself in this particular position and needs a means of getting out of it. Let's be absolutely clear. This whole mess starts with Brexit. Look, you've heard it all before. The people of the North didn't vote for it. The Irish Protocol was a means of mitigating this. And then the Windsor Framework um, was a means of, once again, mitigating that. And that's to reduce as much as possible and streamline and simplify any interactions uh, between... uh, Obviously, we have a three-way scenario here. We have the East-West situation between Britain and Ireland, and then we have the wider issue of um, obviously the North having access to uh, the single market, and obviously the South being fully ensconced within uh, the European uh, Union. And as I said, part of and all the advantages that go with that. And, and I think I think we all probably found it a wee bit ridiculous when Rishi Sunak spoke about the real advantages for the North because it had access to both. While you know the logic was from. You know what I mean? Had Brexit not gone down, they were the advantages that everybody had. But look, Britain has a right to make whatever decisions it wants. Do I have particular issues in the sense that we're dealing with a report from the British House of Lords? Hardly any friend of Ireland over uh, many centuries. Um, but look, the fact is, it said the Irish, uh, sorry, the Windsor mm. framework is an improvement. They're talking about possible difficulties. Now, some of these difficulties relate to this red and, you know, green line in relation to movement of goods and other services between the North and Britain. Uh, and the idea that this was to simplify those particularly goods that didn't go on into the South or into the, in, into the European Union. Uh, and they say there may be difficulties for certain companies in being able to operate this green lane. But look, there will be solutions found to all these particular problems. There are mechanisms mechanisms to deal with them. Uh, and, and look, the fact is, I don't see the DUP playing a major role in relation to negotiations. I see a British government that wants this issue dealt with mm. so it can get on with these talked about uh, trade deals that it wanted all over the world, of which I haven't seen too many, it has to be said. Yeah, but what does that mean for the political institutions in Northern Ireland? Uh, I mean, uh, if uh, the DUP holds firm. Well, the DUP had always said it wanted some piece of legislation in relation to um, ensuring there was some protection for what it called, you know, you know, in relation to the British market, as they termed it, you know, so the North would have access rights and whatever else. I don't know what that would look like in real terms, But see if we're talking about something that, uh, you know, is an easy piece of legislation to be introduced and gets them off their hook. Well, I assume the British government will be looking to get this signed, sealed and delivered. So I'd like to think that that's going to probably happen relatively fast. Uh, Look, it's hardly a shock. 
like some of the people who are on this subcommittee committee like one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss the likes of Nigel Dodds I, I don't think he was ever going to come out and say that he thought the Windsor framework was absolutely wonderful uh, we knew that the seven tests that had been set by the DUP that there was no deal in the real world that was going to be able to satisfy all of mm. those but hopefully these other moves will be able to facilitate them and the fact is they have to be getting it in the air from certain sections of their own support base in relation to get back to work, get the executive up and running, and here, to some degree, to be able to stop some of the cuts that are happening from the Tory government in Westminster that are having an impact in relation to public services and right across the board. So nobody is particularly happy. Now, Michael, you know yourself, I will say there's a very simple solution to all of this. Mm. And I'd like you know everybody, even members of the DUP, to see the uh, absolute logic and sense to Irish unity, but I don't foresee that everybody's going to see that in the near future. Like, I do think a considerable more people see it now, and we are definitely on that right trajectory. And that's why I constantly say that the Irish government needs to prepare for the possibility of that and needs to prepare for a referendum. Hmm. Um, that's, why? that's the important part of work from our point of view. But yeah. let's be but clear. But why? why, why I mean, there's no prospect uh, of that happening, um, regardless of your sense uh, that more people would be supportive of it. Um, it just is an impossibility as things stand. I, I, I don't see it as an impossibility. I, I see that we have difficulties in getting institutions up and running. We know we've always had mm. political difficulties since that since the Northern. That States. may that be an impossibility in itself, but a, a poll on the United Ireland is really just going to see a return to armed conflict. Uh, there's no avoiding that. Uh, if you we, have. We, no, no, we, we've had this conversation before. I, yeah. I don't foresee that. I, I, I'm not like seeing see a situation where we have a sufficient amount of time where people can have all the information out, we can have a political debate and determinations can be made. And if Britain was going to stand by that, which I see that it would, well, then you would be talking of removal of the British presence. In that sense, there will obviously be people with a British identity who we'd need to make room for. And I think that a considerable amount of people would be able to live with that set of circumstances. And and I don't see who exactly fights who in, in, in that situation. That's not to say there won't be difficulty. Since the Northern State was created, 
unfortunately, you know, the main part of it was about keeping one particular community down. It was about keeping the nationalist community down. An inbuilt majority was created for uh, for unionism. Uh, and from time to time, Catholics were injured and Catholics were killed. Now, we're in a much better place with all the difficulties that we have at this point in time. And I think that we can all set about together to build something better than has existed on this island for the last hundred years. Mm, I think that's a big gamble. Um, look, politics is about uh, delivering on what uh, on the possible. And, and I think it's not beyond possible that we can deliver an Ireland, mm. 32 county Ireland, that delivers for all the people, that can do a better job than the two states that are on this uh, island at this point in time. Okay. Uh, and that we can definitely deal with the issues, whether we're talking about housing, health care, the wider economy. Uh, and obviously that also means, and for a huge amount of people, the logic mm. as well of Irish unity is the fact that you get to stay within the European Union, whereas you're in the north at the minute. Uh, you're still at the behest well, of course there's an awful lot that about it that is illogical to people who believe uh, that they are British citizens uh, and maybe that's a sprint that you're talking about and, and uh, maybe uh, it should be a case of walking before you can run uh, the Taoiseach said yesterday that he hopes uh, that the Assembly and the Executive will be back up and running in September uh, but that it would help as well if there was a common strategy between the Irish and British governments. Oh, that, that would make complete sense. Now, the, the advantage that the Irish government has at the moment when dealing with the British government is the British government has its own difficulties, its own economic difficulties, many of which yeah, relate to uh, Brexit, or Brexit definitely has made the situation worse. We all know the impact in relation to the inflation crisis, cost of living crisis, you know, Ukrainian crisis, but Brexit definitely has made the situation worse in relation to Britain, and it needs to be able to deliver on these trade deals. And we know the situation for the likes of the American administration is that they want to see things absolutely bedded down, that the Windsor framework is obviously a positive move, but beyond that, we need to see institutions in the north up and running, and obviously those protections of the Good Friday Agreement. And look, if we didn't probably... It was a major, I suppose, it was a, it was a major advantage having a, an American administration that had a real interest in Ireland, particularly over the last number of years, um, because I can't say that a British government would necessarily always be considering what the Irish people need or want. It would hardly be top of their agenda. History would definitely say it different. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme today with uh, the latest problem in uh, the DUP's uh, approach uh, to this deal that the British government has done with Europe, now known as the Windsor Agreement. That is Rory O'Murakou, Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. What will junior search students do in September if they or their parents don't want them to attend social, personal and health education classes? That's a question that is being posed by AIM2 leader and founder Padre Tobin, TD from Meath West, who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thanks for joining us on the programme today. And you're concerned that parents won't want their children attending these classes when the schools reopen in September uh, because it'll be teaching children about transgender issues. Yeah, so we believe in a pluralist republic. We believe that uh, parents should be able to, within reason, choose the ethos uh, that their children uh, receive in schools. Uh, that's you know has been the way for the last um, ten or fifteen years. 
we've had you know, Catholics, Protestants, Jewish, Muslim, and people with no faith able to choose schools within reason that represents their own values. But the Department of Education has employed a, a new uh, process whereby they're imposing a new curriculum into schools, you know, primary school, secondary school, at all levels, uh, in which it is imposing its own value system uh, on top of parents. So it's kind of going back to that uniformity of the 1950s, mm. totally different value system for sure than the 1950s, but the same uniformity uh, saying to parents that you can't choose uh, the value system for your school. How do you mean and the value system? But so each school has an ethos. Uh, a, it's the, let's say, the framework in which the uh, material is taught to children. Uh, and each school holds those value systems very, very important. The ethos of the school are extremely important for the schools. If you talk to a teacher or a principal, you'll find that out within, within a, a couple of minutes. Um, now, the worry we have is that the Department of Education, Norma Foley, has totally failed to engage with uh, parents in relation to this. Hmm. Uh, we know from representative uh, organisations, the largest parents groups in the country, uh, they were refused positions on steering groups uh, on the NCCA for the development of the curriculum. Yeah, but do you believe that there. teaching about transgenderism is against people's values? No, no, I do think that it's important to teach um, about transgenderism, but I do think it needs to be taught on the basis of science and not on the basis of ideology. And the government's uh, education system that they're hoping to introduce in September is very much based on ideology. Um, and what does that mean? Explain that to us. So, in other words, um, the government's uh, policy at the moment is about gender affirmation. Now, gender affirmation is basically the, to educate children that there are potentially hundreds of different genders, um, and that uh, you can have, let's say, men becoming pregnant, you can have um, you know, issues such as women having penises, for example. Um, so it's, it very much moves away from biology and from science and mm. evidence. Um, and the ideology of, of, around it is actually one where if a child believes they're a certain gender, that that gender is affirmed and that there's no efforts made to understand why a child may have gender dysphoria. So there's lots of reasons why a child may have gender dysphoria. It could be for mental health reasons, it could be autism, it could be other comorbidities. And normally in psychiatry and psychology... Is there any other reason? Well, just hear me out for a second, because Mm. it's important. Normally in psychology and psychiatry, what they try to do is identify what are the maybe underlying reasons that are causing the gender dysphoria. But that's not happening here. The government are going down very clearly a gender affirmation process. Now, if you speak to doctors in the National Gender Service, for example, that these are the most educated in the, in the area of gender dysphoria. They're also the people most invested in it. They work with uh, children and adults on a daily basis. They themselves are saying that the government are being led. The words they use are even stronger than I use. They, they say that politicians are being brainwashed by uh, gender activists on this area. And they want the okay. government to go, to go back to the idea of science as well. And one last point on this. Most of the European countries are actually retreating. They're, they're, they're realizing that gender affirmation is actually quite dangerous because what can happen is that a child can change gender. They can go through operations, significant surgery on their body, maybe take puberty blockers and become infertile, and then realize that the comorbidities or the 
mental health issues or the autism issues are still there, but they're just not treated. And at that stage, they want to detransition back to their original gender. And yet they have gone through this enormous surgery and very serious chemicals. And, you know, they have suffered a lot of damage physically as a result of it. So okay. the, the ideology so there's a, so, 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 so there's uh, quite dangerous. Uh, so, so there's a, some sort of fault in the person. Um, is that what you're saying, that there's a, a disability? Um, you mentioned autism there. Um, is that yeah. why people aren't happy with their gender? Um, can it be well, tra- is, the, is, is this something that can be treated? Well, if you listen to the gender, National Gender Service, uh, for example, or in Britain you had the Tavistock um, um, Clinic. So Tavistock were basically... Uh, going down the road of gender affirmation, the one maybe that you're arguing for here. And when the CAS report was carried out into uh, Tavistock, the CAS report, which was led by one of the most senior psychiatrists in Britain, also stated that these doctors simply weren't doing their job in terms of working out why there was gender dysphoria within a child or a young adult. And as a result, Tavistock has been closed. And right now there are thousands of people suing Tavistock in Britain. So it's really important, Michael, that mm. we just don't accept the ideology that we actually investigated. Okay. Well, when you talk about when you talk about gender dysphoria, you're talking about people who are unhappy with how they were born, the sex, the gender that they were born as. And that uh, a boy believes that they were born a girl and should be able to become the boy that they are and vice versa. Um you're saying that's not true, is it? Well, I'm saying that in many, many cases, there may be a different underlying reason for it. And that in, in science and in medicine, that the idea would be that they are uh, researched and understood. And if there are other reasons for it, that the doctor would actually treat the other reasons. Because if the doctor doesn't treat the other reasons... The other reasons don't disappear. Okay. What about, that's, that's, that, that's many cases. Still, they're that's, still suffering from the, for, for the other reasons that are Okay, you said, autism. such as autism, you said, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, but you said that there's, um, that, that's many cases. Uh, are, are there any genuine cases? Yep, I would absolutely feel that there are genuine cases of uh, people who feel that um, they're in the wrong gender. And I believe there are genuine cases uh, where, you know, children or young adults uh, would like to present themselves in a different gender. And in those circumstances, I actually 100% believe that we need to treat those people with respect, uh, with uh, common decency, uh, and with compassion. Uh, and I do believe... So. How do you do that if you don't understand it? An awful lot of people don't understand it. And how are you going to gain any understanding if you're not taught? Well, I do believe, I do believe we, we have to teach understanding. But unfortunately, as I said, the government are teaching an ideology that's outdated that most of the European countries are retreating from at the moment. Um, and that, that, like, for example, in schools at the moment, you know, I was talking to a teacher recently that went to an in-service day and they were told not to use the word mother and father in class anymore because that was deemed not inclusive. Now, we have this incredible situation where if you look at the end... Well, explain that. What do you mean, mother and father? Um, Do you mean that uh, you uh, speak to all of the children in your class uh, as if they have a mother and father? uh, No, just even to to use the words mother and father in class was deemed uh, not appropriate anymore uh, by uh, staff of the Department of Education. And if you look at the NCCA website, it states that you shouldn't use the word boy or girl in class uh, anymore because it's not deemed... 
uh, inclusive within in classes. And this reflects what's happening in wider society. So the government tried to introduce a maternity bill and take the word woman out of the maternity bill just very recently, which is incredible. We have the HSE now at this stage, you know, getting rid of the word in some cases of the word breastfeeding and using the word chest feeding instead. You know, the HSE did a, uh, wrote up a document for cer- cervical cancer, which is, which is an extremely dangerous illness, and instead of it using the word woman, they use the, the, the words a person with a cervix. So what's happening here is there's an ideological push from the government right through society in terms of, you know, what is erasing the word woman uh, from many, many aspects of society. And, you know, the, the outcome to this is, is also very serious because, you know, we have this situation at the moment that safe spaces for women, such as bathrooms and toilets and changing rooms, even prisons, are being eroded at the moment. Currently, there is a male-born rapist and sex offender put into a women's prison in Limerick. So, again, this this seems stranger than fiction to most people, but we have a situation where there's a a man by the name of Barbie Kardashian uh, who threatens to rape and kill his own mother. And the government, for some reason, thinks it's logical to put that individual into a women's prison where he's threatening other like, female prisoners and prison guards. So all I'm saying is that if you're going to engineer society in a completely different fashion, there are consequences to it. And I absolutely believe that we should treat a young person uh, who is transgender with respect and compassion. But we also need to know that the limits to one person's rights are where they affect negatively affect another person's rights. And we need to make sure, first of all, that parents and children have the right to choose the ethos of their school. You know, the Department of Education is employed by parents to teach their school, uh, children, and yet the Department of Education is refusing to listen to parents now in relation to the education that they're But if you accept transgender people, um, why uh, are you rejecting the idea that it would be uh, as part of uh, the school no, curriculum? Not, I'm, that, that I'm, not, I'm, I'm not rejecting that the, the issue of transgenderism uh, wouldn't be ed- used in schools, but what I'm saying that the current um, government's plans in schools is to teach an ideological version of that, which is not science-based, which is not evidence-based, and where the actual experts in the field uh, are actually warning the government against it where the rest of the international community uh, are uh, retreating from it because it's actually being it's proven very very dangerous to those children themselves and what and what, what is the concern uh, as a result of the approach that will be taken in schools is it that there will be children in schools you believe uh, who as a result of their sphe class will want to change gender well first of all i do believe that's um, the, 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 the issue of schools uh, is that it should be based on evidence and it should be based on science and it should be based on fact. And I think that has to be the baseline in education. You know, I think that um, I have no problem, you know, for example... With, well, where, where's the problem you know, in what's going to be taught to children in terms because, of science or fact? Because obviously in, in biology class, children will be learning the, the facts that there are male and female. Uh, while in the SPAG uh, class, uh, they'll be told that actually there's potentially a hundred different genders. So, you know... <laughs> so so you are rejecting transgenders then? What I'm, re- what I'm rejecting... Or is, is it that yeah. you're, you're feeling sorry for them and thinking that they've got some sort of mental disorder? 
I, I honestly believe that it's 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 important that we don't actually use uh, words like that, mentalism. Well, you're the one who was saying that there's all sorts of problems that can be treated afterwards uh, if you take away this problem of wanting to change gender. No, uh, and I you mentioned you mentioned autism, um, uh, and uh, I, I think I don't think you're 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 you're, coll- you're conflating something. That's what I didn't say. I'm saying that often there are other comorbidities that often lead to a child or a young person believing that they are of a different gender. Okay. And I did say I did say after that, Michael, that there are individuals who don't have those comorbidities who still feel that they want to be the other gender. Okay, so, so what's wrong with what, what's wrong with so teaching children saying, about the world that we live in? That there's men and there's women and there's people who've changed their gender and they're called transgenders. What's the problem with doing that? Well, again, and just, just maybe I didn't make myself clear. Mm-hmm. The government's education system is based on what's called gender affirmation. So gender affirmation is forgetting about the fact that there are potentially other causes to this issue, ignoring those other causes, allowing those other causes to get worse in many cases, trans- transitioning a child... Okay, but you're saying that sometimes there aren't other causes, that people are born that way, uh, yeah. and should we not be taught how to accept that? And I did say, and I did say that we should be taught about those individuals uh, in, in education and school to treat those people with respect. But what I'm what I'm also trying to say here is, if but, we go but down, weird is it uh, resp- treat them with respect, but weird and something no, to feel again, sorry, something to feel want, sorry about. They're your words, and you're trying. Well, to I'm at, no, I'm, they are my words. It's a question I'm asking you. Are you are you suggesting that we should be taught to feel sorry for people like that? No, no, no. I think you're wrong to say that, Michael. And I think that when you say that uh, that they are weird, I think you're wrong to say that as well. Okay. Well, um, that's the question I was asking of you. Yeah, and yeah. again. <laughs> I can repeat it uh, mm. four or five yeah, times yeah, more yeah, if you yeah, like. I, yeah, I don't yeah, think I yeah, think people yeah. should be treated with respect, and no matter how they present. Should, 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 should a woman who was born male should yeah. a, a woman who was born male be treated as a woman? I, I believe that if personally, I would feel that I would have no problem in treating that um, a person in the desired presented gender that they are. But not not uh, not not think, not, not, not in toilets and not in prisons, is it? Do I think it should be a case where a, a sex offender who is born male should be put into a female's prison? Prison? I, absolutely not. Mm. Do I think? What do you think would happen to that person in the male prison? Do, well, no, do, don't do you just. Do I believe that a, a woman should be able to play uh, rugby without uh, playing against a male-born rugby player? I believe that woman should be able to play rugby uh, uh, without having to be impacted by a person who's, on average, far more likely to be physically stronger, physically bigger and to do her physical damage. Do I think that a, a, an athlete who is a woman should have to uh, run against a male-born athlete who has larger lungs, larger muscles, and has, on average, longer, uh, uh, faster running time? No, I don't think a woman, uh, a female athlete should have to do that. I think there should be level playing fields when it comes to athletics. Um, do I think that a female swimmer should have to a, um, compete against a male-born swimmer who is stronger and faster than her? No, I don't. I think there should be a level playing field. There should be, you know, fairness. Uh, women's sports mm. is important. You know, for years it was done down by many people within society. And the idea now that, you know, we allow for male-born athletes to compete against women in women's sports is unjust and unfair. Okay. Uh, just a, a couple of comments. Um, somebody who wanted to uh, talk about uh, 
the gender critical guest, as they're describing you. If we're debating the existence of transgender people, it's the same as us discussing the existence of black, Asian or disabled people. A second question for you. You think that with uh, the judgmental and hateful people out there that a transgender person chooses to be transgender stroke idiotic. Uh, and just a, a second text uh, from someone who says, uh, can they ask you, how many trans people are there in the world, the exact number in this country, if you like, and how uh, can you explain your values are threatened if we teach tolerance and basic human rights of so few people? One of the difficulties I have here is, under the Gender Recognition Act, any person can transgender without, any, without seeing a doctor, without seeing a psychiatrist or, or a psychologist. So while you would have genuine transgender people absolutely using that system, it's wide open also for people who uh, are opportunists, uh, who may uh, use it uh, for negative persons for, the, for their own reason. There's no gatekeepers, what I'm trying to say, in relation to that. And that's why so many women at the moment feel that their, their rights to safe spaces uh, is being undermined. Um, so absolutely, we need to treat people with respect and compassion, but we also need to not lose common sense here. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Rory, a uh, bigger pardon, Padre Toby uh, is uh, the leader and founder of AIM2 and TD for Midwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're 17 years of age and you're working uh, and on minimum wage, you'll get 7.91 an hour. If you're 19, that 7.91 will increase to 10.17 an hour, but it's still less than the 11.30 an hour for anyone over the age of 20. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions have said uh, that this is manifestly unfair and discriminatory and a throwback to the sort of discrimination women were made to endure in the 1970s. The Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association does not agree. Neil Macdonald is Chief Executive of ISME and On The Line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Why or how is it fair to pay somebody less per hour for doing the same work as another person just because of their age? It's, it's frankly, it's not just because of their age, Michael. And, and good morning to you and, and to your listeners. Um, it's not discriminatory uh, to pay uh, people who are very inexperienced or potentially on their first job um, less than others. Um, age-related minimum wages are in place in almost every country in Europe that does have a minimum wage, and, and a lot of countries, in fact, the wealthier countries, don't have have a minimum wage. Um, but age-related um, minimum wages are in place in the vast majority of them. And the, the sub-minimum rates, as they're called, they recognise the lack of experience um, for those people who may be taking up their first job. They could be getting trained. Uh, they need supervision by a supervisor, and so their productivity is low, and it recognises that. Um, but we, we to compare... Uh, this to gender discrimination uh, frankly a, a great many uh, of us were you know very disappointed to see such uh, an egregious uh, 
use of language and that this is this is not discrimination on age-based grounds this is simply because we're dealing with people who have no experience they're coming into the workforce and their productivity is is lower is that always the case well I, I'm sure that in many cases, uh, Michael, that you'll, you'll find that there's a, a 17 or 18 year old who may have been working, uh, who, who may have amassed experience elsewhere, and, and therefore they're not starting off um, as an inexperienced, uh, untrained worker. And what we would say to that uh, worker is l- look for the full rate of pay or a higher rate of pay or move elsewhere. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about when you're talking about a statutory minimum wage. And the statutory minimum wage is is the minimum wage uh, set by law below which an employer can't pay someone. So we do think it is entirely uh, appropriate to allow uh, workplaces to pay below the below the minimum rate for underage workers. And we have to recognise it's it's not alone um, when you're just talking about the the, the minimum. Um, sorry, age-related minimum yeah. wage, Michael. Don't forget that there are, there are also. Uh, apprentice rates of pay which acknowledge that some people uh, are insufficiently trained to do the job on their own in the workplace. Mm. So to suggest that this is age-related discrimination is quite frankly outrageous. Uh, We think uh, that ICTU has done this simply to generate full outrage over something which they know uh, quite frankly, is not age-related discrimination. The the other thing, Michael, to point out is that you know um, annual increments are long established in the public service, and they effectively mean that two people doing the same job in the public service, the, the person who has served more years is getting paid uh, more than the person who hasn't. So, mm. experience is hard baked into the public service already in the form of increments. So it's a bit rich suggesting that uh, age-related um, sub-minima for, under, uh, for younger workers yeah. are in some way discriminatory. I don't know. I see it all the time. Uh, I mean, I go into a shop or a garage, a cafe or a pub, and I see different people working there. Uh, one of them might be running the place uh, on 70 or 80% of what the other one is earning because of their age. Well, I, I, you may have seen that. I I've can't seen all the time, yeah. I have seen. I, I can't honestly say, Michael, that I have mm. seen a business being supervised uh, by a seventeen or eighteen-year-old. And and if that was the case, and that person was being paid a sub-minimum rate of pay, then they shouldn't be. Uh, and the business mm. is very foolish to do that because we're effectively running at full employment. And that worker will get work elsewhere. But frankly, you know, that's a distraction from what the, the main issue here is, Michael, which is the statutory minimum rate of pay mm. that can be paid by law. So let's not, uh, it's important not to have an apples and oranges discussion about this. All right. Well, the rates, there's four different rates. Uh, there's the minimum wage and then three different rates uh, for people who are under 20. Uh, that's 70, 80 and 90% of the minimum wage, which uh, at the moment is 1130 uh, but uh, it could very well increase to 1270. Uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, yes, and this is the uh, proposed plan to move us to a living wage. 
Um, and we absolutely understand that given the inflation we've seen over the last year, Michael, that there is a huge pressure to increase wages. Um, but, you know, we would make the point that wages have been rising faster than the national minimum wage has been rising in any case. Um, the national minimum wage has averaged 3.4% rise over the last five years, whereas wages in the private sector have been uh, lifting by uh, 4.9% over the last five years. So employers are chasing the market, they're chasing labour in the market through higher wages. The question is, if we increase the national minimum wage by 12.4% in one year, is that not going to have a negative effect? And, and the research on this that, that has been done in the, in the market by the ESRI and by the Department of Enterprise suggests that what will happen is that those a significant proportion of those workers who are on the national minimum wage, where, where those services cannot pass that cost increase in labour onto the market, what will happen is that the work hours for those workers will decrease. In other words, a 12.4% increase in their hourly rate of pay will not translate into a 12.4% increase in their, what, what you and I would call our P60 pay or our weekly income. Yeah, or their spending power, uh, I think, is possibly uh, another uh, concern because you're talking about an increase of about €55 a week for somebody who's working full-time, but somebody's going to have to pay for that, and I gather that will mean uh, that uh, it'll fuel inflation and that it'll become uh, an even uh, more expensive cost of living. Well, well, that's the issue. That's the uncomfortable issue, uh, Michael. And a, a great many small businesses work in the services sector, um, ch- in childcare, in grooming, in nursing homes, and so on. I, I should say at the outset, because people are saying, well, why are you paying the minimum wage? Just pay more. In reality, very few businesses are actually paying the, the national minimum wage. And, uh, you know, I've been in the room with a lot of businesses and business owners talking to Min- Minister Coveney about this. And they say, we don't pay the minimum wage. However, our wages are pegged to the national minimum wage. So they will have staff who are on a contract that says minimum wage plus a euro 50 or plus two euros or two euros 50. And that means that if the minimum wage goes up by 12.4%, then all other wages up to around €30,000 per annum are affected by that. But what this means in the commercial world, unfortunately, is where you have services where the cost... uh, the, the, the cost of sales, the cost to your customer can be 50, 60 or 70 percent labor, then you, you are going to have a significant increase in the cost of that service. And unfortunately, that is going to mean that people have to pay more for their, their child minding, for, for nursing home care uh, or for a haircut or a cut and blow dry. Okay, well, we'll uh, find out uh, in due course if uh, the government will accept that recommendation of 1270 an hour from the Low Pay Commission. But we leave it there for the moment, Neil, and thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Neil MacDonald is Chief Executive of ISME, that's the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. 
Providing 1,500 rapid build acute hospital beds plus six surgical hubs and four new elective hospitals would cost €4 billion. The Irish Hospital and Consultants Association says the government should be spending that €4 billion in its pre-budget submission. Let's speak to Martin Varley, who's Secretary General of the IHCA. And a very good morning to you, Martin. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Spend that four billion, you're saying, to the government, but don't stop there for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, As you've outlined, we think it's hugely important that the government takes real action in this budget to put funding behind the expansion of hospitals. Uh, As you've outlined, you know, a lot of stuff has to be done in terms of extra beds, theatres, facilities to treat patients on time. Our consultants countrywide are very concerned at delays in providing care to patients which are arising because of the capacity deficit. Um, we've seen, you know, unfortunately, at times of the year, that can give rise to absolutely unacceptable numbers of patients being treated on trolleys. These are hospital-admitted patients, patients who need to be admitted to the hospital, who can't be given a bed. And also, the other impact of having a lack of capacity is because one has to admit acutely ill patients who absolutely need treatment in a timely manner, uh, surgical appointments get cancelled and we're seeing thousands of surgical appointments have been cancelled so far this year and the waiting lists unfortunately are growing as well. Yeah, It's terrible but it's true uh, that in a lot of respects we're like goldfish aren't we that we get into the summer months and we forget about the pressure that comes on the hospital system as we go into the winter months and it's not that long ago since uh, there were a thousand people waiting on trolleys meaning as you say they were uh, admitted to hospital, but there wasn't a bed available for them in the hospital. And we were told it'll never happen again. Uh, that I don't know how many times we've been told it'll never happen a- again. Uh, but in order to stop it happening again, you're saying uh, make these beds available, build the hospitals, etc. But you also have to staff them. Absolutely. You have to do the two things. You have to put the capacity in place and you have to put the additional staff in place. So there's two chunks of cost there is the capital cost of putting the extra facility in place and it's the operating running costs and you know what it's even very difficult for staff of all grades in hospitals to try and operate in a situation which has less capacity than is needed the workload itself is that much harder and heavier and difficult for patients and for the staff so getting to the point whereby we have enough beds and staffing them would be a fantastic place to be for patients and for everybody you could deliver the care in a timely manner. Mm. Uh, to the cost, but the Exchequer is facing into an unheard of surplus of £26 billion this year and next. So a decade ago, during the financial crisis, one could understand why, to some degree only, why the government didn't invest in capacity, but capacity was neglected in the extreme. At the same time, population is increasing and the population is getting older. Mm. So now we have a rolled up set of problems of even bigger magnitude that need to be dealt with. And now is the time for the government to do it, to have the wherewithal. And of course, it is going to require more staff. Mm. But getting more staff might be easier if you have good facilities. That's the other Mm. thing we shouldn't lose sight of. A lot of staff leave because the facilities are not there, the work circumstances are so difficult, etc. 
We may have the money, Martin, but do we have the wherewithal? Who's going to build the hospitals and where will the HSE get the consultants? Already uh, there's 930 vacancies for permanent consultants, uh, as you're highlighting in your pre-budget submission and have been for some time. Uh, But you also need the... Uh, ordinary uh, staff there, uh, the nursing staff and and the support staff and so on. Uh, you're talking about employing a lot of people uh, as well as uh, delivering the capacity, the buildings for them. Yeah, you're correct. There's two things need to be done there. One, one needs to actually be able to build these hospitals in a very efficient and effective manner. That's been done on occasions, and I think in fairness to... Uh, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. That's been expanded twice, to my knowledge, uh, DED, and then a whole new block, which is uh, has uh, operating theatres and some um, inpatient beds in it. And that, to my knowledge, did work fairly well and was uh, very effective mm-hmm. in terms of how it was delivered. So we shouldn't be too fatalistic. We know there are problems, for example, with the big project, the National Children's Hospital, but that's a huge project. And we shouldn't assume that expansions of the nature we're talking about here that are required across the country, uh, the elective theatres, uh, surgical hubs, delivering uh, the 1,500 beds that the minister said he wants a rapid build on. Uh, and I absolutely accept his bone if he is on that. Uh, one can rapid build. Let's look at the private sector. Let's look at what has happened in Our Lady Lewis Hospital in Drogheda. Uh, the private sector will add uh, a big extension to their hospitals, such as happened with the Hermitage, Black Rock, the Galway Clinic, and the Bonds Group in Cork. They put on fantastic new expansions over the last decade, and they've done it sort of within a two-year period. So it's doable. We shouldn't be fatalistic. And is the workforce out there? Well, if one sets up the projects in a proper fashion, the workforce can be found. Mm. And I know it's still going to put pressure on the system, but we can't just push this out and out and out with increasing an increasing population and an ageing population, whom we know we have a massive deficit. Uh, we're just setting ourselves up for an absolute failure if we don't act now. And that's not fair to the population around the country. It's not fair to the staff in the hospital. So that's mm. why we're calling this out so strongly at this stage we think the opportunity is now and that's just the beginning of the work that needs to be done every year over the next seven years yeah and it it needs to be time bound it needs to be financed up front and and there has to be a commitment to opening not delivering I don't like this word delivering because it's a bit vague as to what it means when are we going to open something people should know when they're their politicians should be uh, on the project to make sure it gets delivered and opened not delivered because I thought delivered is too big. You touched on the issue of the consultant vacancies. Yes, we have Mm. 22% to 25% of our consultant posts vacant, 930 posts nationally. These figures are going up and up. Jordan, Navin and the whole Northeast is equally exposed to these problems. It's in terms of hospital services, in terms of mental health services, and uh, we need to get that right. There's two parts to that. There's the contract terms and how those are offered and operated for consultants. So we start to attract back the consultants we lost and uh, see the exodus that's happening as currently happens. And the second part to that equation, in my view, is having good hospital working capacity that people can work in because nothing worse for a consultant or a doctor or anybody, nurse or any other grade, to be working in a situation where you can't treat and look after your patients as you want to when you've been trained to. People leave for those reasons as well. So it's a combined 
impact of two or three things we need to get right. And again, I'm saying we shouldn't be fatalistic. Mm. We can get this right if we want to. And the money the is there. Really. Yeah. Okay. And the money is there. Martin, I have to leave there. I've run over time. But thank you very much indeed for your time and for joining us this morning. That's Martin Varley, Secretary General of the IHCA. That's the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. And that's our programme. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.